Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with Dan Abrams, author of Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, The Courtroom Battle to Save His Legacy. Welcome, Dan. It's really great to have you, Dan. Dan is also the chief legal affairs anchor for ABC News, host of the hit show Live PD on Arts and Entertainment Network, host of the Sirius XM radio show, The Dan Abrams Show, where politics meets the law, and also author of best-selling books on Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, the owner of a trendy New York City restaurant. So here's the problem, Dan. You know, lawyers are mostly type A personalities, but you're making us all feel inadequate. <laughs> you know, someone asked me the other day if uh, I ever envy lawyers, and I will tell you that the one thing that I don't get to do that I wish I got to do is uh, um, appear in court. Uh, to, I, I, the, the great litigators, I think, um, have a, a terrific job, and um, I, I miss that that's not part of my life, but I will say that I do enjoy the rest of the things that I'm doing. Yeah, I'm hoping that maybe you can let, you know, one of your restaurants fail so we can all feel a little better about ourselves. Yeah, well, they have. <laughs> totally failed, so you're good. All right, good. Thank you. And, you know, I understand how you feel about uh, uh, being in court. I'm, I'm a litigator. Your book uh, felt as much like reading a transcript from a trial as any other book that I've I've read, and, and it was done in such a, just a fabulous way, uh, Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, where you you actually went in and, and took transcripts from this trial and, and turned it into the, the drama for your book. What was amazing to us was that not just that there was an almost 4,000-page transcript of a trial where Theodore Roosevelt was the defendant in a case, but that it become kind of a footnote to history. Right. Um, and <clears throat> that's the thing that I think surprised us most as we were digging in here was it was the story of the of the year at the time. Right. Everyone was covering this case when Theodore Roosevelt was super liable. And I gotta be honest with you, I, you know, it was such a such a great story. Um, I didn't know how it concluded. And so the drama at the end, I'm not going to give a spoiler, the, the, you know, the verdict at the end had quite a bit of drama. But let's, let's back up a little bit. In, in the, the book, you talk about the case where uh, Teddy Roosevelt was sued for libel by the Republican Party leader William Barnes in 1915. And give us a little background about uh, why uh, Teddy Ro Roosevelt's statement that were the subject of the lawsuit were so important. I mean, there was a year's worth of of background leading up to the battle between these two. Yeah, and, and I think that the battle that this really centered on was the question of whether senators should be elected directly by citizens or by state legislatures, as was the case in many states, including New York. At the time, and Roosevelt felt very strongly that citizens should be um, the ones electing senators. And he would cry the party boss who were trying to maintain the system, whereby, in effect, they 
got to pick the U.S. Senators. And that was the backdrop for this. And in supporting a gubernatorial candidate, uh, Roosevelt made a comment about the corrupt bosses and the corrupt alliance between the Republican and Democratic Party. And the head of the Republican Party sued him. And it was interesting because one of the first things that came up in the case was, was this necessarily about Barnes? His lawyers were saying, well, you know, they can't even necessarily prove that this is about Barnes. We think the case should be thrown out. And so the opposing lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer, said, all right, well, then let's call Mr. Roosevelt to the stand. Mr. Roosevelt, did you make these comments? Yes. Did you cause them to be distributed? Yes. Were they about Mr. Barnes? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. So he, he cut out the potential argument that that maybe this wasn't other about the defendant right away. But he was, you can, and you can tell in your book. I mean, he he was such a s- strong personality that he he just couldn't back down from anything he said. He was obviously had, was a, a man of great honor. He knew what he who he was talking about. And even though someone else might parse the words, he wasn't going to. It, it was Barnes was exactly who he was talking about. Exactly, and, 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 and you know he wanted, but his focus really wasn't to the last Barnes. He made comments like this before about the corruption of the party bosses. I think he was probably very surprised that he got sued over this, right? Because there had been so many times when this issue had come up. But, you know, the, the real, you know, I gave some of the backdrop, that the real acrimony between Barnes and Roosevelt in particular occurred in 1912 when Roosevelt uh, decided to run for president again. He had stepped down in 1908 saying he wasn't going to run again. He promised he wouldn't run again. And then he took a break and he decided that he was going to run again in 1912. And the Republican Party was opposed to him, even though he was running as a Republican. So in some of the primaries, again, the party bosses worked against him in what, you know, effectively these days would be viewed as caucuses or something other than a direct election. And he believed they were responsible for denying him the Republican nomination in 1912. I mean, he very well may have been right. I mean, you know, when you look at the general election that occurred, he and Taft split the vote. Uh, that allowed Wilson to win, but he got many more votes than did Taft in the general election, even though he wasn't running in a major party. So that was the that was the backstory. They'd been friends before; they had their disputes, but that was the beginning. That was the real end of their relationship was the 1912 election. Yeah, right. And and so Barnes, uh, you know, worked against him when he was seeking the Republican nomination in in 1912. And obviously, you know, he he took great offense to that. And, you know, when you look at the, you know, the voting results, uh, there's a, you know, a strong indication that if, in fact, he was the Republican candidate that, and it was a unified party, that he he had a, you know, excellent chance of, of having, you know, taken the, the presidency back. Exactly. So... Right. And so, you know, he, he, when, when the lawsuit was brought against him, he embraced the opportunity now to go in and talk about, you know, the, the, the party bosses to, uh, you know, make his case about a number of issues. Uh, and so, you know, you gave 
the uh, the 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 plaintiff's you know examination of of the colonel as you as he's called in the book all the time Teddy Roosevelt is called the colonel um, and he admitted to everything and the plaintiff's direct case was relatively short You know, and he wanted to have his his uh, forum to go and prove that everything he said was true. So the plaintiff put their case on for a day, and then Roosevelt gets up there for I don't know what was it like five or six days. Roosevelt was on the stand twice. Right. One time here, and then again, and he testified for eight days in total. And it's kind of amazing if you think about that. Right. And, you know, and he loved it. I mean, you, as, you, as you go through in the book, I mean, you, you, uh, you know, base it on the testimony, but then you talk about, you know, the impressions that people had and his mannerisms. And you can see that he was relishing this opportunity to go after these rivals of his that he thought, you know, weren't up to the standards of, you know, public servants that uh, he thought they should have. And he went on and on about all the different areas of uh, corruption that were occurring and the, how the, the two parties were, were in cahoots. Um, and, you know, it gave him a forum to really, you know, expound on all of, all of his, all of his uh, theories. And put him back in the spotlight. I mean, this is 1915, so he now hasn't been president for seven years, and or you know, six and a half years. And you know, he's been fading a little bit from the front pages. And, right. And just put him back on the front pages. So we should point out that one of the witnesses who ended up having very relevant testimony was Franklin Roosevelt, his distant cousin who walked into the courtroom um, as you know the the newly minted. Right, and and tell us a little bit about the relationship between uh, Teddy Roosevelt and and Franklin Roosevelt, because that was also, I think, a fascinating you know side note in the book. Franklin Roosevelt uh, looked up to Teddy, meaning they were of different parties. Franklin was a Democrat, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, but they were both reformers, uh, and in that way, they they shared a certain philosophy. But you know, Franklin always looked up to, as you can imagine, former president of the United States when he was president, etc. Um, and so I think that he was 
pleased to be able to, even though they were from different parties, offer testimony that was helpful to his uh, cousin in this case. And the testimony focused on whether the Democrats and the Republicans, the leadership, were in cahoots together. And in effect, Rose, Franklin Roosevelt was offering some testimony which suggested uh, that they very well might be. Right. So it's just, you know, when, as we were digging in, we were like, wait a second. And Franklin Roosevelt testified in this case? I mean, it, it not only is it an interesting case with Teddy Roosevelt as a defendant, but if the cousin Franklin uh, ends up testifying, and, you know, um, the image of Franklin Roosevelt, again, right into a courtroom um you know years before um he lost the use uh, of his legs right um is is just a you know a striking you know he knew all the reporters he was um you know he was a he was a charming up-and-comer right time. charismatic right and there was a lot of interesting side notes here especially for lawyers. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about, I mean, there's a lot of legal strategy that went into this particular case. I, I got to tell you, Dan, I bought the book for my father for Father's Day. And what I usually do is buy him a book that I know I'm going to want to read. And and so he's a he loves history and biographies. So his review is, there's a lot of lawyer stuff in there. Um, that was his review of the books. But he read it and he liked it then gave it back to me. But I want to talk a little bit about the strategy, about how the plaintiff's counsel was really, they outsmarted themselves by objecting to proof regarding corruption that Teddy Roosevelt was putting in. And the judge let the testimony go forward. And then he asked, then he agreed with the plaintiff's counsel and said, he asked the jury to disregard uh, substantial chunks of the of Teddy Roosevelt's testimony because of the objection. So the jury had the effect of hearing the testimony, but then the plaintiff couldn't rebut it because the judge just asked him to disregard it. And that seemed to really be a huge part of this of the case that that uh, with respect to the result by the jury. So so this was over a question of should the defense be able to introduce evidence of corruption not the kind of corruption that Roosevelt had necessarily been talking about. Corruption with regard to effectively getting kickbacks from a printing business. Right. Um, Barnes was um, a publisher of the most, you know, one of the most prominent uh, publications in the state in Albany. And he had a big printing press and a printing business. And the side business they had was printing books and documents. And, and the question was, was he effectively using his role to take kickbacks and, and other corrupt uh, dealings in his printing business? And the judge, as you point out correctly, allowed that testimony to be heard. And then the defense argued, so the plaintiff argued, that you know it should be immaterial, and you know they lost that argument initially, but eventually won. And so it was kind of a, you know, a pyrrhic victory in the sense that, you know, they had fought and fought, and then he, they got it excluded, but the jury, as you point out, had heard it, and so as a result, they couldn't present evidence to rebut it. Right. And, you know, look, was that dispositive in the jury's uh, verdict? Unclear. But um, it was certainly an interesting, from a legal perspective, and, and this really was a fascinating 
the rulings were close. The issues were were interesting. And I do think that lawyers in particular will find the book um, fascinating. Yeah, I, and, and I got to tell you, I did. I'm someone that uh, loves reading trial transcripts. And, you know, you can, if you've been through a trial, you can really, it gets kind of your blood going when you're reading across. Uh, and that's what your book uh, uh, does. And I think a very good way, because you don't have to, it cuts through the stuff that's, you know, the boring part and gets to the real meat of the issue. And I think you did it in a, in a in just an excellent way. I would rec- certainly recommend it for any anybody uh, you don't have to be a lawyer, certainly, to appreciate it. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on that uh, get tied into, you know, the history here. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned before about the direct election of senators, U.S. senators, and, and how that, you know, now we take that for granted. It wasn't always the case. It was uh, in, in, historically selected by, uh, you know, the state legislators. Um, and Teddy Roosevelt was a populist. What do you think— um, Teddy Roosevelt's thoughts would be on the Electoral College. Uh, look, I, I, obviously the Electoral College existed uh, back then, right? Um, and he accepted it back then. But I think that there is a similar argument to make about everything from superdelegates to the Electoral College, which is to say that they don't reflect the will of the people. Um, and yeah, there are reasons for it, right? There were compromises that were made. Um, but, you know, I have spoken out uh, um, very publicly about the fact that I think that the Electoral College doesn't make a lot of sense uh, anymore, in particular because the protections that were they were needed for to make sure smaller states, for example, have representation, you're still going to have two senators from a state with a fraction of the people um, of a more populous state. Right. And, and that will remain a protection. But I think that the the idea that, you know, we, we should not elect a president based on what the majority of the people in the country um, want is, is crazy. And I think that it, it suddenly makes it such that presidential candidates are going to just a select number of states now. I mean, for people to say, well, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, no one will come to, to my state if I live in a small state. Well, no one's going to come to your state unless you live in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, et cetera. Right. Um, anyway, so, so it's become this weird situation where because of where we are now, that five states are determining the outcome of, of every national election, that, you know, I just think that, that for those people who advocate, one vote, one person, it's crazy. Well, let me, you know, and, you know, the, but the argument on the other side would be, well, you know, if we just go to a purely popular vote, uh, I understand the, you know, the one person, one vote uh, argument, but if we go to a popular vote, the effective result is we're going to have, you know, the campaigns will be in New York City and Chicago and LA and, you know, Miami and effectively disenfranchising the rest of the country. Think about it. The Republican candidate is never going to be able to sway major votes in New York or L.A. or Chicago. They're still going to go almost almost entirely to Democrats. So the idea that, oh, Republicans, you know, at a national election, the idea that Republicans can spend a ton of time in New York 
more politically divided areas, the closer areas, um, the areas which are more split, which are not going to be the biggest cities in America. Mm. Um, so, so it's actually not true that that would be the impact. I mean, look, the strongest argument from my perspective is just the, you know, it's been around a long time. It's a, it's a basic principle that, that we should appreciate. And, um, and there's, you know, there's a reason that the, that the framers made this kind of compromise. And, you know, I, I, I get it, but I think that in the society we're in now, it is, um, and I said this, look, I said this um, before the 2000 election, I said it after the 2000 election, I'm saying it after the 2016 election, it isn't about which side benefits, it's right. just about the idea that, that I think is antithetical to what the country should be about. But is there is there anything to the fact that um, there's a, there would be a feeling that large swaths of the country would feel disenfranchised if, uh, you know, you were able to get an election just with, you know, four or five of the large major cities of the country? But, but the, that's actually not true. So I think 15, the 15 biggest cities make up, I forget what it is, 10 percent or something of the, hmm. you know, the total number. I have to look it up. But it's a small, it's a small number I see. in terms of uh, what the biggest cities in America have. But but again, um, you know, I, I would say that it, it, it's right now a situation where it's even worse, which is that we have five states determining. That's it. Right. If you don't live in one of those five states, you know, any any national presidential candidate is not going to be spending much time what, in your state, if any at all. What would you think of an electoral system where it wasn't each state where it was winner take all, which is also I think the winner take all part uh, is uh, contrary to the one person one vote uh, uh, requirement. But what if it was each uh, congressional district? where um, each congressional district had one vote, like we see in, in Maine and, and uh, North Dakota, where the congressional district can vote. So the state could actually divide its uh, uh, elector, electorate. And, you know, then you'd have kind of swing districts all over the country. You'd have, you know, maybe New York's Hudson Valley would be a highly concentrated, uh, you know, target. And maybe one in Virginia or somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I don't know that that I, I don't know that, that sort of compromise is really the you know is the answer either. Um, I think that in the end, in my view, it should be you know we should either stick with the system we have or we should uh, eliminate it and, and say we're going to move towards on the national scale a, a one person one vote system. Right. And, uh, the fact that our presidential election is not determined by who gets the most votes is just what kind of impact do you think there was a recent case by the in the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, 10th Circuit, uh, involving the state of Colorado, where they tried to prevent uh, a delegate from not voting along with the way that the 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 state electorate had um, decided? Um, what do you think is going to be an impact of, of that case, where they held that uh, that the elect the elector could should be able to vote uh, whichever way they wanted. Yeah, I mean, look, I think this just shows you the folly in the system, right? First of all, as you know, that that's just applicable to the 10th Circuit states. Yes, now. right. Um, but, but, you know, it just shows you how absurd the system is, that they're trying to find these electors who are supposed 
a handful of them. And in this case, you know, it wasn't about, uh, it was, you know, in this case, it, it was actually uh, voting for, I think, an independent candidate, or it was for Kasich, I think. Yep. Kasich, um, yep. Right. Um, so, so, you know, it, it, it was an effort to say, we don't want Donald Trump, Trump to win, but it was also not sort of switching completely uh, to the other side. And it just, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. This whole, you know, the electors and the, and look, what's going to happen is, as a result of that ruling, is they're just going to ensure that the electors are toadies. Right. Um, that, that, that if they're not, if they're not proper toadies, then they won't get chosen as electors. And it means even more power to the party bosses again. Right. Dan, uh, I want to thank you for being on Miranda Warnings. Uh, great new book, uh, Teddy Roosevelt for the Defense. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where you can share any sort of artistic performance that you'd like. Uh, could be related to you know this topic or, or anything. It's just uh, something for our, our listeners to take away with them. Um, I mean, look, I've been reading recently a book about called The Teachers about Andrew Johnson. Mm. Um, the book is good. Uh, I'm not willing to say it's, it's the best book I've ever read, but it's good. It's very interesting. But what's most interesting to me about it are the comparisons to today. It's about the rancor and the anger and the fury um, and the sense of allegations of lawlessness. And when you look back at the you know, at the arguments that were being made in those days about Andrew Johnson, putting aside the impeachment proceeding in and of itself, there are so many comparisons to what's happening today. And I guess the sort of oddly reassuring thing about it is that, you know, that they survived it. And uh, the president, you know, didn't end up being impeached and convicted. Uh, and I think that um, when you look at it, Right. Well, I hope so. So that's the impeachers about Andrew Johnson. And we're very pleased to have on Miranda Warnings, Dan Abrams, author of the new bestseller, Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, the courtroom battle to save his legacy. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, great having you. Good luck to you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.